I'm just going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag at the beginning. Uh, turn to Galatians 2, I'm sorry, Galatians 6, verse 2. Galatians 6, 2 real quick if you haven't yet. Uh, Galatians 6, 2, please. I'm going to basically base this entire message today, which is week 2 of 4 in letting go. We're talking about letting go of this kind of pains and hurts and anger and bitterness uh, of our lives uh, that kind of keep us sometimes from that next step of obedience in faith that kind of keeps us from that continued growth. We call it sanctification, the holiness process by which we are prepared for heaven. Um, this is week two of four in letting go. Uh, today's message is based on this whole verse. This little tiny verse 6-2 says this, if you want to look it up with me. It's a power-packed verse. Uh, we've included it in your study notes, uh, but you're going to want to look it up. Um, because there are some other verses around it in Galatians as well that sort of fill in the power-packed uh, nature of this verse. It says this, 6-2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Say it with me a couple times and we'll have it memorized after we do it just a couple times. Ready? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. One more time. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What are we called to bear for one another? Burdens. That's right. There's a lot here that we'll unpack a little later about fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. That's the unique thing about this verse. It's saying you can fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens, by, by living in a way that demonstrates that the law of Christ is in us. We'll talk about that a little later. But first, I want to give you the practical application of where we're headed. We'll, we'll talk about pain and hurt a little bit. We'll unpack the verse. And this is where we'll get to in the end. And this is the big idea in your study notes there. that says this, We need to share our stories of hurt and pain with one another. I know that that's a big ask. But I've chosen those words carefully and purposely. It says we need to share our life's story of hurt and pain with one another. It doesn't say we should. It doesn't say it would be helpful to. It doesn't say like for the super spiritual among us. <laughs> this is an option once you're mature. It says we need to share our stories of hurt and pain with one another. Now, I don't mean to suggest that we need to turn the church into one big therapeutic center for spilling out one's emotions with no filters. The, the weird therapies of the 60s and 70s, of those of you who are alive there, were less than enough in that kind of regard. But we do need, and I choose the word we on purpose, meaning we, the body of Christ, need, we desperately need to become a safe place among us here in the body of Christ, a safe place where risking connection with one another is the norm. We talked about that last week, risking connection so that so that we are able to share our stories of hurt and pain with one another. So <laughs> that sort of principle of leadership here uh, you can't lead anyone else where you yourself haven't already gone. You can't lead somebody else where you don't go. So I'll go ahead and go first. I'm going to share with you a little bit about me and my story of pain and hurt. So if you could just uh, sit down for about the next three hours. Uh, well, no, um, I'm just going to tell one little incident uh, about my life. Uh, my life is, is, is a story that few kids 
can uh, sort of identify with growing up. Uh, as a child, I lived a sort of life that few do. A uh, few ki- kids can say, I'm a pastor's kid. It's, it's like a little of that first night of a, an AA meeting where you say, you know, my name is Scott and I'm a pastor's kid. And so I've got a pastor's kid story. My family's life was always about ministry. As in always <laughs> about local church ministry. When I hear people talk about you know, how you were there every time the doors were opened, uh, every night of the week, you know, people say that about their involvement in church. I think to myself, please. Who do you think got there an hour early to prepare those doors to be opened? And who do you think is the kid's going to be that stays an hour afterwards to clean up after everybody else is gone? I was there before and after the doors closed. Because the Wakefields ate, drank, talked, and slept. Church ministry. As a kid, I fell asleep on the couch, uh, often at somebody else's house, listening to my parents share hours of laughter and tears with other believers in Christ. I have great, great, great memories of all the most important relationships of my life and the experiences of my life happening within the context of the body of Christ. Church is all I've ever known. I've got it in my bones and communion juice is flowing in my veins. Ninety percent of the time, the legacy of growing up in a ministry family is something I truly cherish. I watched my parents uh, live with passion for the gospel in a way that never wavered. Uh, they were the same people in private, in home, that they were on stage. And that's why I was hurt by an incident that happened around my sophomore year of high school. This is that 10% of the hard things about growing up in a ministry family. Uh, it would become uh, an incident that would define me. At the time, my dad was the music and worship minister at my home church. We were a healthy and a vibrant and growing church. But at that time, the worship wars were starting to heat up. And my dad was caught in the crosshairs of some selfish, immature, and mean-spirited people then. So up to this point, the church leadership had done a biblical study of worship. There were focus groups. Uh, There was a congregational powwow to discuss things. There were surveys passed out the whole nine yards. And I could tell from the tone of my parents' discussion at home that things were beginning to get a little bit stressful. I didn't know much other than generalities because uh, my my parents were always really good at at keeping us and my brother and I from that. I didn't know the names of people involved. I didn't know the hurtful things that they'd said. My parents were always good at really keeping church stress from our home life. Which is why this particular incident was such a defining moment for me personally. For me, all my church life had been this almost utopian environment where all my best friends whom I loved and who loved me came together in unity to love Christ and to worship Him together. I truly loved my church family. But then one day, I happened to, in the middle of these worship wars, with my dad as the worship and music pastor at my home church, I happened to sit down at my dad's desk. And I came across the worship surveys. There were hundreds 
of responses. We were a pretty big church. I went through all the basic data and the questions about personal preferences of style or worship service times or things about choirs and bands and all those kinds of things and read through the data. But then I got to the end of these surveys where the written comments, where people had space to write in written comments, some of them pages long. They're basically divided into positive comments and negative comments. There were plenty of positive comments. But then I began to get to the end to all the negative comments. I started reading these things people were saying. People were writing things and saying things that I knew to be patently untrue. I read the hurtful things people were saying about my church and the worship service and the church leadership and about my own father. And I read response after response after response. And I thought to myself, they just... They don't have any idea what they're talking about. They don't know my dad's heart. And so, as a sophomore in high school, I didn't know what to do other than just sit there in my dad's office, in his chair, and just weep. I just wept. I couldn't, I couldn't stop. I remember one response. One response is what I remember, in particular, that said, my dad looked and he acted more like a game show host on stage than a worship leader. For me, that was it. That was all I could handle. Something at that point meant my world was fundamentally different. From that point forward, (laughs) that one anonymous response on a worship survey drove my life. My weeping became a constant undercurrent of seething anger. They didn't know my dad. It began to fuel in me a constant drive to prove those negative people wrong. (laughs) I said to myself, I would show those immature and selfish people that church isn't theirs to play around with. I dedicated myself to uh, go off to college and to seminary and to get two PhDs and to get straight A's and to win every award and to come back 17 times smarter than those mean people who think the church is about them. And I would preach the evil out of every single one of them. It's the last thing I ever did. I would outwork and outsmart and outlast and undo every single ounce of self-righteous churchianity that I came across. (laughs) All because of one anonymous response on a piece of paper from somebody I didn't even know. It's taken me 20 years to slowly unpack that hurt and to realize the dramatic effect that it has had on me personally. Those kinds of things in my life turned me into a people-pleaser who struggles with anger that I feel like I'm not allowed to express. 
someone whose attitude, positive or negative, seemed to turn on a dime because of what somebody else thought about me. I wanted to prove to those anonymous people in every single way that I could that they would not win. Have you ever been hurt badly and you didn't know how badly you were hurt until much later, perhaps even years later? Maybe you still don't know how badly you've been hurt. Many of us go through life minimizing pain Minimizing their own pain as if it wasn't really a big deal. While at the same time, sort of underneath, seething with anger. And behaving out of that underlying pain and hurt. And let's get real for a second. The church isn't exactly known as a place where you're allowed to reveal that kind of hurt and pain. And so we minimize it, we stuff it, we hide it, we pretend it's not affecting us. Friends, every single one of us in this room bears with the painful marks of a world that is broken by sin. Every single one of us bears painful marks of a world broken by sin. Divorce, marital affairs, broken relationships in the family, disease, cancer, death. We have people in our congregation who have undergone the terrible pain of abuse of all kinds. Rape, sexual, physical, verbal, emotional abuse and trauma. We have those who have seen horrific killing in war personally. We have people in our congregation in the body of Christ who deal with the brokenness of the world and who have seen and been through unspeakable tragedy in their lives. We have people addicted to drugs, alcohol, pornography, money, security, popularity, materialism. We have people who have been beat up by legalistic churches and well-meaning Christians. We have those who daily deal with the crushing weight of depression and loneliness, who have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. We could go on and on. The truth, friends, is that sin results in pain and hurt. Sin results in pain and hurt. And those pains and those hurts don't just go away. They have to be reckoned with. Something has to be done about them. That's the underlying tension with which we live in a broken world. Something has to be done about that sin that results in pain and hurt. And so what we do is we, we try and we try and we try to do something about them. Since the garden... We have been making fig leaves for ourselves instead of allowing God's grace to be sufficient. 
The world's way of dealing with sin is, is a self-satisfaction. Adam and Eve simply happened to be the first ones to give in to that. And we have been ourselves inventing ways to satisfy for sin by ourself. In fact, we begin to, to hold on. We begin to hold on to that pain and that hurt with a vengeance. It begins to, begins to identify who we are. That's why we're calling this letting go. Because the more we identify with that pain and that hurt and that anger in our lives, the more it controls us. For many of us, years and years after the pain and the hurt happened, we're still holding on because we think we can handle it. We think we're good enough to take care of the pain. If I just pray harder, try harder, read more Scripture, sing louder, come to church every time the doors are opened, say yes to everything that's given to me as an opportunity to serve. If I just, if I just discipline my, myself to be more morally upright, if I could just achieve more and be more disciplined, I could get past those weights. I could finally let go. which of course is a lie. You can't fix it. (laughs) You can't fix it. Some people go to the grave still trying to fix it themselves. Which means that pain and hurt are real. Christ didn't die for a pretend sin that has no consequences in our world and in our lives. He knew it all along, of course. In Genesis three, sixteen and 17, as a response to the sin of Adam and Eve, God said to the woman, in pain, you will bring forth children. He likewise said to the man, in pain, you shall eat of it, the tree. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. When sin entered the world, there were consequences. And those consequences haven't yet fully gone away. In fact, they won't until the Lord returns. Romans 8.22 says, The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. It harkens back to that passage in Genesis and says, The whole world since that time has been groaning like God said that it would. So something has to bring relief this side of heaven. If we, like Romans 8 says, if we're, if we're groaning, if we're honest with ourselves about hurt and pain, then we realize that Christ is the only one adequate to heal. But we even realize that that healing from Him doesn't come completely until heaven. And so we're in this tension. This tension of, am I called to waste away in misery, this side of heaven, without relief from the pain and the hurt? That's the tension we live with. Thankfully, we have the body of Christ. That's God's gift to help us bear with hurt and pain. Look at Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.2 gives us four insights that will help us. Will help us in our pain and our hurt. 
Galatians 6.2, just as a reminder, says this, if you're looking on. It says, bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There are four things we learn from this. The first, and this is the first blank in your outline there. The first is the reality of burdens. The reality of burdens. All Christians have burdens. The word for burden here, uh, the word for burden here, means most literally a heavy weight or stone. A heavy weight or stone. Figuratively, it means any sort of problem or trouble. It literally meant a heavy weight or stone that you're meant to carry for a long distance. Figuratively, it came to mean any trouble or hardship that is difficult to bear with. In Matthew 20, verse 12, Jesus spoke of the workers in the vineyard who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now, now our burdens may be different depending on their size and their shape and their history. I mean, like, saying a kid on the playground has Dumbo ears, true story, is a very different thing than saying, I was sexually abused as a child. Those are different burdens. Those are different burdens. For some, it may be the burden of temptation, the burden of the consequences of some sort of moral indiscretion. For others, it may be a physical suffering, a mental disorder, a family crisis, job problems, lack of consistent housing or enough food. These are all different burdens, but they are all nonetheless burdens. Read Romans 8, 18 to 28 this week to sort of reckon with this truth that all creation is groaning. (laughs) All creation is groaning. And it even includes innocent second graders who have their ears made fun of. Second, we all have burdens. We all have burdens and they are real. And God does not intend for us to carry them alone. This is the second blank in your outline. It's the myth of self-sufficiency. The myth of self-sufficiency. God does not intend for us to carry them alone. He made us relational beings. He made us in His image. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's perfect communion between the three persons of the Trinity. And we are made in His image insofar as we are made to connect and to be relational beings. God doesn't intend for us to carry them alone in isolation from those who can help bear with them. And yet many of us still go through life like the Stoics who think that apathy and self-sufficiency or how we find contentment. No, friends, the myth of self-sufficiency tells us that the self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery. Self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery, but it's a mark of pride. Pride. 
Self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery. It is a mark for the believer of pride. It means I don't, I don't really have to depend on God to take care of my pain and hurt. I got that handled. I got that handled. Self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery, but of pride. That's why Paul quotes in verse 3, if you want to look at 6.3, he quotes a maxim, uh, a saying of that day that is aimed at correcting that self-sufficiency. He says, verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So being a supposedly independent man or woman who doesn't need others is not a superior ability. It's self-deception and it's pride. Being independently blank so that you don't have anyone else who needs to bear the burden with you is not a mark of a good thing for the believer. It means your priorities are out of whack. Being a supposedly independent man or woman who doesn't need others isn't superior ability, it's self-deception and pride. And not only do we refuse others' help because of it, we end up refusing to bear with the burdens of others because we think that would be beneath someone who thinks he is something. So when somebody tells us stories of pain and hurt, we look at our watch, we can't wait to be done, we refer them to somebody else, we find a way to escape. We instantly are met with this, I, 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 can't, I can't fix that. Which is true. You can't, just like the other person can't. But you can learn, you can learn as a member of the body of Christ to bear one another's burden. It's a real burden. And you have to realize that you can't be self-sufficient to meet that burden. And thirdly, because all Christians have burdens, and because none are sufficient to bear their burdens alone, thirdly, God has made the body of Christ so that its members are to be priests to one another. We call this the priesthood of all believers. We're called to be priests to one another, bearing one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. The third blank is the imperative of mutuality. The imperative of mutuality. It's called that because look at verse 2 in chapter 6. It says, bear one another's burdens. It's stated in the imperative as a command, not as an option. Bear one another's burdens. He's saying, be like a priest who mediates God's love to one another. Paul talks about that kind of mutuality at length in 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to read that chapter this week to study up on the working of the body, that would be a good idea. There in 1 Corinthians 12, the body in that context is, is sort of broken. It's fractured at the church in Corinth. And there are factions and there are self-serving leaders. And Paul says this in verses 25 and 6. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 and 6. He speaks to that broken body. He says that God put the body together in a mutual relationship. So, verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now check this out. Next verse, verse 26. We'll put it on screen if it's not good. It says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. 
If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Self-sufficient people in the body can't suffer with others. Can't rejoice with others. Paul's telling us that the truth of the body is that when one suffers, all suffer. When one is honored, we all rejoice. The amazing truth is that God has put together the body of Christ in such a way that we grow and it works only when the imperative of togetherness, of mutuality, is followed. That's the only way this body grows. You want to know what church growth looks like? That's what it looks like. We could put signs on every road in Greenville and we wouldn't get church growth like that. That kind of church growth takes effort, takes time. takes learning to bear with one another. Here's the cool fourth insight for us to see. When the first three truths happen, the fourth also happens. We live by the law of Christ. We're living by the law of Christ. Lastly here, look at uh, 6.2 again. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's talk a little about what's going on here in Galatians and why bearing one another's burdens fulfills the law of Christ. This phrase, the law of Christ, has a rich biblical history. And it's important here. Uh, look back at Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 13 to 14. For a little bit of help, here it says this. For you were called, you were called to freedom, brothers. Meaning freedom in Christ, not to the law. We're not slaves to the law. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. It says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, not one word, but in this whole word saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law fulfilled in that one phrase. Look at Matthew 22, 36 to 40 with me. Shows another place where Paul in Galatians is looking back and taking meaning from what Christ has said to fill in this idea of the law of Christ. It says Matthew 22, 36 to 40. In the context here, Jesus has been uh, just asked a trick question by the Pharisees. And uh, so Jesus blows them out of the water with this cool response. It says this, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment and in the law? They're trying to have him to boil it all down to one. They're trying to catch him in it. It says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, meaning Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. They all agreed with that. They were all shaking their heads at that point. Then he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the part that truly floors them, verse 40. These were men that had made up 600 plus laws and commandments to follow. And he says, verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Later on, cool verse in John 13. Super cool verses. John 13, uh, 34 and 35. Later on, Jesus 
says this in John 13, 34 and 5. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul, here in Galatians, is taking Jesus' teaching of this new commandment and he's packing into these four simple words in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. He's packing all of that information into that little phrase. And here's the crazy part about that little phrase. If we live by that new commandment of bearing one another's burdens, we show that Christ has achieved for us what the perfect law came to demand from us. It means we can now fulfill the law by loving one another in a way that shows that God loved us. That God makes us adequate. You can only bear one another's burdens if you realize the inadequacy of your own ability to bear someone else's burdens. But when you do so, you show the adequacy of Christ. His sufficiency. So you, you don't have to stand in front of somebody as they tell you of their pain and their hurt and their anger, even if it's at you. You don't have to stand there and have the right answer. You don't have to fix their problem. To bear with them is to, like Christ on the cross, dying to self, unselfishly care and listen to hurt and pain that is real. And so friends, I want to simply ask you one question. How can we bear one another's burdens if we don't even know what they are? We create these self-satisfying, self-righteous relationships and structures among us in the flesh, sometimes even in the body, that mean that we don't have to bear. We don't want to bear. We don't want to hear. Let me refer you to. And so we learn not to tell anybody else. We learn not to tell anybody else our own pain our own hurt. Because we don't think they can handle it. I want to suggest one simple thing. Not easy to do. Simple to understand. One simple thing you can do this week. Just to find someone. I don't care if it's in this room, in this body of believers. Someone with whom you can share your own story of pain and of hurt.
when we learn to do that as a community, we become the body of Christ in a way that fulfills Christ's law of love. And that is a community. That is a church that people want to be a part of. If I'm that person, great. I'd love to hear it. If it's someone else in the body of believers here, great. If it's not, great. If someone approaches you, just listen with care and concern to bear the burden. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to have the right answers. You just need to enter into their pain and their hurt. Because that's what Christ did. Christ had no need, no cause, no reason to enter into our sinful, broken lives. But He did. Entering into the sin of our lives so that He could bear the burden for us. And because He bore the burden for us, we can bear the burden for one another. May God make of us a place where that is true.